Good morning. 815. We're still waiting on a spokesperson from either the department or the electoral commission. And no doubt by the time they provide a spokesperson, probably to another programme where it'll just be them and the interviewer, they would say, oh, this confusion was generated by Liveline. If they do, I'll swing for them. Joe, Monday. The issue? Voting. Or rather, making sure you were registered to vote. We have those referendums coming up in March after all. And not that we would want to anger Joe, but it kind of was confusing. Eddie was the citizen who started it all. I got concerned, really concerned, when when the message that I received came up. And it states, and I'm going to read it out to you, if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. It says that the electoral registration process has now changed. Mm-hmm. Even if you are already registered, you now need to add your PPSN number, your date of birth and your ear code. This is to facilitate the local county council to make sure that everything is correct about your, your registration. Now, my query is this. When I went on to the uh, check your, your register.ie, oh. there's two red boxes that's coming up. And unless you fill in those details that they're seeking, I'm, I'm afraid that we will not get our voting cards. Now, we never, uh, we never had to... Uh, once you register for your vote, your voting card is issued every time there is an election. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Now, my fear is this, that if these details that the register is looking for, your PPSN number, your date of birth and your ear code, if they're not added on to the the registered list in in every local county council registrar, that will we get our voting card? That's my fear. And all of this was on checktheregister.ie. And while Eddie himself had no issue giving out those details as PPSN number, date of birth, air code, he worried that, given the wording on the website, others might miss out. Will this change uh, stop me and everybody else that does not register on the website? Will it stop us from getting our voting card? But, but, but then Joe had a statement from the government saying, no, you don't need to register. Everything was fine. And That's yet I have, I have... In my hand, a long, long statement from the Department of Local Government, and they say re-registration is not required to vote well, in no, an electoral event. There's a contradiction event. there, Joe. There's a serious contradiction there. And both of these languages are English. Yes. And that confusion, ambiguity, call it what you will, was at the heart of all of this. Now, if you are lying in the bed going, sweet mother of the divine, I need to get this sorted out. Relax. It's okay. More cock-up than conspiracy. But it took a while to unravel. Jackie, not at all keen to give the state her details. Why do you need a PPS number? They have our air codes. They know where we live. If we're already on a register of electors, mm-hmm. we should be fine. Yeah, we but shouldn't air, be told. Yeah, but, it, but in fairness, the air, the air code is attached to a place. Your PPS right. number is attached to a person. Yes, That's but different. the place, the place. But you're, but you're, but you're saying, are no. you are you worried about Big Brother? That's the call, Jackie. Uh, Big Brother, Big Brother is Big Brother, and Big Brother is well and truly in hot action here. But let's go back to the present point. Okay, so my my polling card comes to me at my address. My name is on it. Yeah. My address is on it. My air code is on it. And when I go to vote and cast my ballot, I bring a form of ID. On, on the day of, of an election. Mm-hmm. So what exactly is wrong with that process? Why do they need our PPS? What because exactly is behind that? 
Mmm, people were rattled. With the referendums on March 8th looming, you would be a fool not to want to exercise your vote. And let's face it, lifeline callers, no fools. Here's Maria. In the statement from the Department of Housing and Local Government, that this, this statement I have on my hand in paper, so they won't give yeah. us a spokesperson. I, I just well, want... I, I just I, 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 council. Yeah, I just want clarity. I want clarity from the department. Yes. When they say, I got say, clarity, Joe. I got clarity from Dublin City Council, Cork City Council, Offaly County Council, and Waterford City Council. I rang them myself in those particular departments who deal with the Register of Electors. I asked them very specific questions. Yeah. I even went as far as asking them who owns the website. Has it been tendered out to a third party? No, it's not. It's actually under local government. I went and told them went further what I've just said on this radio station that there was members of the Department of Justice and um, a member of Vanguardian who went and checked, having done those steps uh, and providing their PPS number, providing their air code and providing their date of birth before Christmas who went in only on Friday to check their details that they were all in good order and their PPS number has been removed and it is telling them that their their application is incomplete having completed that application before Christmas. There you are. Here it is. Here it is in black and white. It's RE- R-E-G-I-S-T-R-A-T-I-O-N-I-S-N-O-T-R-E-Q-U-I-R-E-D-T-O-V-O-T-E-I-N-A-N-E-L-C-T-O-R-A-L-E-V-E-N-T. Full stop. Re-registration. Re-registration. Your PPS numbers are allocated by the Department of Social Welfare and they're given to the Revenue Commissioners. So there's a GDPR issue. So none of the local authorities will be able to A, verify that number and for what purpose do they want to verify? I could give your PPS number. Good point, yeah. Yeah. Secondly, Dublin City Council sent out letters to everyone on the register because I got the form with a letter saying, please fill out these details with your PPS number and date of birth. Secondly, how are they going to verify your date of birth? It's a similar situation to the um, to the to the Department of Social Welfare and Revenue Commissioner. So I could put, uh, I could have my own name, and hypothetically, I could have Joe Duffy's PPS number and a date of birth, uh-huh. or walk into Glasnevin Cemetery and pick a, 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 a date of birth off a headstone. So it's, but it's, it, there's no way of verification. Kevin, perhaps prompting Joe to go online. Was he registered? Tension. Okay, I'm just pressing search. Um, no, your details could not be found. You were not on the electoral register. Yet I've been voting since I've, I don't think I've ever missed an election or a vote. Okay, let me go. Bear with me, listeners, please, because they then say, let's just double check. Um, I actually put in my air code now, and I, and I know my air code of my heart coming through. Oh, God. I'm sure the software is fine. Okay, here we go. No results. I'm not on the electoral register. I've tried it twice. Pity the civil servant scrabbling in the database for that one. And the calls kept coming. What exactly was the story? But then, at about two minutes before the end of the programme, nothing if not dramatic. This... From the Department of Housing, we want to thank the show and its listeners for bringing this issue to light. Oh, my God. We agree. This is Department of Housing. We agree the website wording was ambiguously phrased. 
and the website is currently being updated to provide greater clarity to voters. The most important message is that anyone on the register who is entitled to vote in the referendums will be able to do so. Phew! Stand down, people. Stand down. You are good to go for the referendums in March and the local and European elections in June. And hats off or other hats on to the Republican voters in Iowa who turned out this week to state their preferred candidate. Here's John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent from The Nation magazine with Sarah. It is surreally cold. Uh, I, I would be a little frightened even to describe it to people in Ireland. Uh, but if you know the Fahrenheit scale, right now in Dubuque, the temperature is roughly one below zero. And with the wind chill, it's about uh, 20 below zero. So that means that if you go outside for more than a couple minutes, your skin starts to freeze. None of which stopped Republicans turning out for Donald Trump. He romped home with 51% for the votes. A record win. Washington correspondent Sean Whelan spoke to Rachel from Iowa. Sean, Donald Trump's speech, when the results started to become clear, I mean, it was very Donald Trump, for instance, he claimed he won the Iowa caucus in 2016 when he didn't. But uh, significantly, he devoted most of that speech and most of his ire to Joe Biden as though he'd already won. Yes, and he did. And, and strangely enough, that was reciprocated from the White House because a tweet in the name of Joe Biden uh, said, it's clear now Donald Trump is the uh, clear leader uh, on the other side, and we're going to go straight at it. So Biden, assuming he's got the nomination all wrapped up, and assuming that Trump has the nomination all wrapped up, uh, that suits Biden's agenda, and it suits Trump's agenda as well, because Biden is not popular. He's not doing well in the uh, opinion polls and the presidential ratings. Uh, so uh, they want to get to the main event, as it were. And it also suits Trump to talk it uh, as if he's won everything, uh, to build this narrative of inevitability and clear the field uh, of his two rivals, uh, DeSantis and Haley. And of course, that US election, not until November. And globally, so many of us are going to the polls. In fact, some estimates say half the global population will be putting their tick. But in the era of AI and fake news, it's really hard to know what to believe. Liz Carolyn works on tech and democracy issues and is founder of Digital Action. She spoke to Justin McCarthy on This Week. So we have the, these huge number of elections globally. Uh, it's a big, big test, isn't it? Because we're in an era where misinformation and disinformation are being spread like never before. So let's start with those terms, misinformation and disinformation and the difference between them. Yeah, so it's I mean it's an extremely exciting year, um, but a very worrying one for for those of us who who care about democracy. Which um, we're actually we've just had our sixth year of decline globally in democracy across the world. I mean the, the real difference between mis and disinformation is intent. Um, so misinformation is just whether it's a fact or an image or something which is taken out of context that's being spread, but without deliberate intent. That's disinformation. So this is where you might have um, a, a bad actor who's deliberately trying to mislead people or to make somebody look bad. Uh, some of the most damaging um, disinformation in the context of elections is process disinformation. So to try and um, fool people <laughs> about the process, the questions that are at stake, even things like the date and location of polling. 
and traditional media outlets, RTE included, are for many no longer their main source of news. It's all about Facebook, Twitter, Insta. So how can you make sure what you're getting on social media is factual and accurate? Does regulation of social media work? Um, we've been trying it. I mean, I think the, the EU last year passed the Digital Services Act. Um, and what that's trying to do is, you know, I guess shift the focus a little bit away from content. So what people are saying and instead thinking about the systems. So platforms are not neutral. Um, they make decisions all the time about what content to prioritise. In the past, they haven't been making those decisions based on what is good for democracy, what is good for human rights, what is good quality information. It's been based on other factors like what will get people to look at our platform for longer. And so the EU is starting to try and introduce regulations, in particular for big platforms, to change some of those systems. But it's very, very slow to come about and there's a lot of resistance. And with the increasing sophistication and use of AI fake videos doctored audio, everything needs to be scrutinised. The Electoral Commission is going to have a very important role this year in process disinformation, but we really need media outlets, um, broadcast, um, you know, local radio, national radio, our national broadcasters, media, to be aware of media manipulation tactics that can be used by extremists and also to be aware of how are they equipping themselves to deal with misinformation in real time and live as it happens. Liz Carolyn of Digital Action on This Week. Meanwhile, fire up the chopper, dust off the ski goggles, fondue sets for all, baby. It's Davos time. As the rich, the powerful, the influential and, yes, elected politicians all gather for the annual World Economic Forum. The theme this year, Rebuilding Trust. Europe editor Tony Connolly spoke to Morning Ireland. Apart from the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, AI, artificial intelligence, climate change and global wealth will be talked about too. Yeah, I mean, th- those are the big ticket issues this uh, this week. Uh, AI in particular, generative AI, has been described as the arrival of the steam engine relative to the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century. Huge implications for the way companies work, uh, for the future of employment. Um, a lot of benefits and opportunities, but a lot of risks as well. And again, some of those surveys by PricewaterhouseCoopers showing that 70% of CEOs are uh, think that generative AI will have a major impact on their companies in the next three years. And conflicts, climate and the risk of chaos all dominated what was described by Tony Connolly as a gloomy agenda. However, one perhaps surprising finding. The geopolitical backdrop also uh, shining a spotlight on uh, growth inequality, wealth inequality and uh, Oxfam uh, issuing a survey this week saying that uh, 260 uh, millionaires would, uh, would call for increased taxes uh, on their wealth in order to have a more equitable uh, world in terms of uh, uh, growth equality. Proving that not all millionaires are moustache twirling baddies. Honest. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Supercharged this week was a lot about hair loss. Well worth a listen back. But they also gave us some tips on how to deal with the very persistent voice in your head. You know the one. Oh, you don't want to do it like that. That's not great. Are you wearing that? You've messed up. You've ruined it all. Okay, maybe that's a little too dramatic, but that mean little voice, not your friend. 
the inner critic is a tricky one. It can be a sinister business. Um, I, I think the first thing first, we all have an inner critic. It can largely lie subconscious most of the time, which is fine. But usually in times of increased stress, um, when we're reaching a burnout stage, the inner critics can start rising in volume. And it actually becomes a little bit more toxic in nature, how it speaks about us, you know, what it tells us about how we look, how we feel, things like that. And the, the thing to remember about the inner critic is that it might seem relatively innocuous. It's only a few bits of sentences in your head. But if it goes on long enough, it can actually lead to mental and physical harm because that kind of negative inner critic could eventually, believe it or not, activate the immune system, activate a lot of the stress hormones in your body like adrenaline and cortisol. And over time, that really contributes to nasty things that can develop in the body. So I think the first thing to remember about the inner critic is we all have it um, and you can't actually stop it. Now, what you can do is you can sidestep it. Mm -hmm. So I think what many people feel, they, they feel like, oh, I wish I could just get this voice and I could just stamp it out. And, you know, that's kind of like having a conversation with an itchy foot. There's no point in having that conversation because the inner critic is neither rational. And here's the most important point for me. Uh, it's a thought, but thoughts aren't facts. Yeah. And we have to remember that. I think it's one of the most crucial statements about mental health in general, you mm -hmm. know. That's Dr. Porrick Dunn from the RCSI Centre for Positive Health Sciences. Now, he mentioned sidestepping that voice, but Anna wondered, just how do you do that? There's a paradox here. As soon as you engage with them, they grow bigger. So okay. you've got to almost let go and step back. So really, one of the analogy I can use sometimes is, you know, you're walking down a forest path uh, and is this giant boulder you meet in the middle of the path. Mm -hmm. I mean, you're not going to have a conversation with the boulder. You're just going to walk around it or walk over it. So when the when these kind of negative thinking cycles start emerging, as soon as you engage in the turning to big stories and the big narratives. So what we want to do is step back and disengage. Now, that can be hard to do, but it's like training a muscle. Mm -hmm. If you engage a kind of a practice on a daily basis, and this might seem really simple, but it's actually really effective. So we don't try and engage it. We don't try and argue with it. Mm -hmm. We just step back, allow it to exist the same way as you would an itchy foot. You might scratch it, but you won't have a conversation with it. Step back and try and sidestep it. And one of the most effective ways to do that is through various different types of meditative techniques. So one of the ones that we've researched is called attention-based training. And really all that is, is it's standing up, it's sitting down wherever you are, it's focusing on your breath. So watch it as it goes in and out. And your inner critic might emerge and start getting really loud and bombarding you with these messages. And every time it distracts you, you come back to the breath. And every time you come back to the breath, it's like flexing a muscle. It's like lifting a dumbbell. You're increasing that muscle that gives you the capacity to disengage. And that's the biggest key here for me. Out, devil voice, be gone. From Supercharged. Now, if you're a true crime fan, and many of us are, you're going to like Runaway Joe, the latest from the Doc on One unit. Pavel Barter offered a few teasers to Anya because the Joe in question, Joe Maloney, came to Ireland from America, where he was wanted for murder. They murdering his wife? Murdering his wife. And he came and sheltered here in Ireland? Yeah. So they had been married for five years, from 1962 until 67. She left him after five years. She had two children, citing physical and emotional abuse. Three months after she left, he organised a birthday party for their child, one of their children who was turning five. And at that birthday party, he fixed her a cocktail. 
and she almost immediately fell ill. Two days later, she got taken into hospital. She fell into a coma. And nine days after that, she died. Whoa. He moved here, adopted an alias, Michael O'Shea, and worked in the film industry. But the Gardaí had suspicions about him. Long story short, he was arrested. Maggie O'Kane spoke to shocked locals. The small town of Dalky in South County Dublin was stunned by the news that the friendly, slightly balding man who pottered around the town in Denham's was wanted in America, accused of murdering his wife. They knew him in Dalky as the man who worked in the movies and was renovating the house on Kent Terrace. He dropped into his local delicatessen regularly for breakfast. I couldn't believe it. When I heard he was up, I thought it was for fraud or something, you know. I couldn't actually believe it was for murder. I never even knew he was an American. But, and this is where it gets interesting, or rather even more interesting, despite best efforts to extradite him, he's still out there. But where? And that is the question. You might even know him. Someone, somewhere, knows what became of Joseph Maloney, Michael O'Shea in Ireland. So we'd encourage anyone with information about Michael O'Shea, Joseph Maloney, to uh, reach out to documentaries at RTE. Runaway Joe, the Doc on One. Your binge listening sorted. With Ray, Graham Norton, can we go past him? It seems we cannot. He was all over the place promoting Last One Laughing Ireland. The idea is you can't laugh, but you've got to try and make everyone laugh. So you can't just sit in a room, all of you, doing nothing, not laughing. You've got to attempt to make the other people laugh and not laugh yourself. Which I will grant you. On paper, sounds like a dull watch. (laughs) What? Just 10 people not laughing for, you know, that many hours. But uh, actually, if you watch any of the others, uh, you'll see that it is a lot of fun. And I have to say, I would say, for my money, uh, the Irish one is the best one. If you do say so yourself. Now, he was chatting to the Darcy about all kinds of things. Turning 60, getting married and being a chat show host. You kind of can ride out the vagaries of fame. You know, when I started 25 years ago, there were people we'd have killed to have on the show and now we'd just kill. (laughs) We we, we do not want them. Oh, it is a harsh business. But he did pay tribute to one he felt was the chat show Yoda. The totally modern person is Gay Byrne. He Mm. doesn't seem old-fashioned at all. He just knew how to be on camera and he was so at home in a television studio. As you were, as you were. Well, but not like that, because he was live. I mean, it was just, it's phenomenal what he was able to do. But as for Tommy Tiernan's show where you don't know who the guests are, he likes the concept just not for him, which he more than demonstrated with this anecdote. I was at the theatre the other night and uh, a man was walking towards me and he went, oh, don't worry, I'm not sitting next to you. And I kind of went, <laughs> like, whatever. And, uh, and I turned to my husband and I went, do I know him? And my husband went, yeah, that's you, Bonneville. <laughs> And I was like, oh, right. I mean, the light was doing it. It was lit from behind. It was a, and, you know, and then it was very nice. He did sit next to me and we did a nice chat. Yes, and, yeah, I, yeah. and I did know about him. But if I was Tommy Tiernan, I might have just looked at him blankly as he walked on set. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And does he plan on going on with the showbiz for a while? Yes, but not as far as this man. Like Bruce Forsythe was presenting Strictly in his mid-80s. No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, 
was at an award show. I was at an award show, and Bruce Bruce was staggering to the stage to do something, and Jimmy Carr turned to me and he said, oh, "Isn't that amazing?" And I went, "No." <laughs> It's awful. <laughs> so, yeah, I hope to retire. So I don't want to stop working because I think the, you know, the pandemic taught us all that not working was not a good thing. Mm. Uh, you know, all those people who thought you know, retirement was going to be lovely uh, had a rude awakening. So I, I'd like to keep my hand in a bit, but maybe just, you know, just a bit less. Are you addicted to work, do you think? Eh, I mean, there's probably a bit of addiction to that validation, you know, the vortex of need that is in every <laughs> performer, uh, you know, so it's it's nice having people sitting in, like, imagine, like, every job should have it. There should be, like, a, an applause Friday where, you know, somebody does a photocopy and everyone goes, yay, well done. Because imagine how much fun work is if people applaud you for doing it. So, uh, yeah, that validation a is... A little well is done would be nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's hard. I think it'll be quite hard to quit that level of validation. And to finish, just a little bit of stirring from Ray. Ah, you'd have to. You know, there's a slot here going to beg at nine o'clock, which means five days a week. Have you ever done radio five days a week? I thought they'd, I thought they'd got someone. No, well, I don't know. No. By the time this goes out, shaking their heads. Someone sitting at home now listening to this. I thought, I, I thought that was my job. I thought it'd been offered to me. Were you offered the date late as well? You probably were. I was not. No, I, I was not. Graham Norton with Ray. On Arena, renowned classicist Emily Wilson joined Sean to talk about her translation of Homer's Iliad, an epic about fighting at its most basic. We are right slap bang in the middle of the Trojan Wars. It's gory, it's violent. It's very violent and very and very upsetting. I mean, it's it's so much focused on the intertwining of rage and grief and how grief leads to rage, leads to more killing, leads to more grief, more rage. And how can you ever get out of that tragic cycle, which, you know, we're so aware of in, in the world today in so many places around the world. But conflict is at the centre of the Iliad and mortality. In fact, I believe that you, you spoke to contemporary veterans. Was it mostly veterans of the Vietnam War, in fact, that you spoke to? Uh, about I've ni- talked to both. I mean, I've talked to to both cadets who are training for future wars, and also various veteran groups who've, which always includes veterans who've served in several different wars. I mean, there's, I I live in the U.S., so it's very often veterans of Iraq or the Korean War or Vietnam, depending on their generation, mm. they or Afghanistan, and for all of them, the Iliad resonates in these different ways, no matter what the terrain of the war they've served in is. It resonates with the that, that focus on the comradeship of men in war and also these terrible things which are so hard to talk about if you're a veteran coming back after having seen um, these horrors and having killed people. How do you talk about that? Homer is one way to, mm. to talk about these terrible things. And not for her any fundamental revisionism of the text. What kind of uh, agency did you want to give to the female characters within the Homer epic? I mean, in a way, it's, as a translator, it's not my job to change the story. And if, if the characters don't have agency, then I'm not I, I'm not going to give it to them. Mm. I'm going to present the truth of what the text says in the text perspective, which is that in many cases, these women don't have, don't really have agency. They do have feelings and voices, which I think is, you know, there's this deep humanity and empathy in Homeric um, perspective and storytelling where we get to feel how they feel. We get to hear from Hector's, the warrior Trojan Hector's wife, Andromache, pleading with him not to go fight mm. and 
get himself killed because if he does, their baby's going to be killed. She's going to be enslaved. The city's going to fall. It's going to be a disaster for everyone. Um, so we get to, to know how does it feel to be a woman in that position whose only possibility in terms of changing events is to beg her husband not to go. And then at the end of the poem, it ends with three women lamenting for Hector, who has gone and got himself killed, uh, or who's been slaughtered mm. by Achilles, as we know he's going to be. Those women are the ones who are going to be left when when the men are all dead, who are left, left to lament. So they, the, there is in the poem this real clarity about women's voices matter, but it's not like they can change what the men are going to do. The goddesses can change things, but the women, mortal women, not so much. And in case you were wondering, and I know you were, this is what it might sound like in ancient Greek. And there you have it. No more Conorina. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Events in Rosgrey dominated the news this week. And in common with many towns in Ireland in the past few weeks and months, there were scenes of protest against the housing of international protection applicants in the town. However, on Friday's Morning Ireland, they had a report from Ballinamore in County Leitrim. In 2019, there had been protests, pickets and complaints against the housing of asylum seekers in the town. And a building due to house those people had been hit by an arson attack. However, more than 100 asylum seekers did move in to the provision centre on the roof of the town's Tesco. Now, almost five years later, Kieran Deneen visited Ballinamore to see how they had got on. But first, a reminder of some of those objections almost five years ago. We do have an issue with this type of compound living. We'd prefer that the families would be integrated into the town. We don't feel that this particular site is, is fit for purpose. We believe that it's segregation up here, it's not integration. We would like to see a proportional number rather than the, the large numbers that is being proposed. Those were protesters talking to RTE in October 2019 when Ballinamore County Leitrim was announced as a destination for more than 100 asylum seekers. It's now over four years since the families first moved into direct provision accommodation on the roof of the town's Tesco supermarket. Maureen Martin is chairperson of the Ballinamore Area Community Council. I was very involved in it because I was one of the people who went to the Dáil to meet the minister at the time. And our concerns were no doctor, um, short numbers in the, in the school, the creche wasn't able to take any more, the playground is very small, and just general facilities in the town, trans, public transport as well. I mean, we had a population of about 800 at the time, and um, people were very concerned. So has Ballinamore changed, do you feel, in the last four and a half years with so many people from different ethnicities? Yes, we've become much more multicultural, which is a good thing. Language-wise, I know some people have taken um, lessons and some of the asylum seekers have come to the Irish classes and I'm ashamed to say they're better at Irish than I am. It has improved the town. I still think, though, that the government 
could have done more with facilities. And Skull Clan Nefa is the local primary school that now has nine teachers, up from six four years ago. And yes, space is an issue and an application is in for an extension. Its principal is Katrina McManus. I suppose we probably shared some of those concerns back in 2019. But as a staff, when we sat down together, we just said children are children. It doesn't matter where the children come from. Children generally have the same needs. And I suppose I can understand why people are apprehensive. But our experience has certainly taught us that a lot of those concerns were unfounded at the time because the children that have come to this school have been fantastic. They're eager to be here. They're eager to learn and they want to take part. They want they want to be one of us. You know, they want to join in. They want to have fun just like every other child in the school. With 20 nationalities, diversity is fully embraced at the school evident at their end-of-year concert last summer. We talked about different types of performances that we might do and I suppose we really wanted to encapsulate that feeling of positivity and that, you know, this is working. We're a very diverse school, but it's, it's all working. So each class chose a song with a message. Third class sang Consider Yourself. And so the message we were trying to get across there was that, you know, no matter where you are, who, you're, who you are or where you're from, you know, we want you to consider yourself one of us. And then our school show ended with Wave and Flag and we had all the children, over 200 children on the stage. And we had the flags of all the different nationalities of the children in the school and they were waving their flags at the end and there was just a very positive feeling in the room. The children of Ballinamore ending Kieran Deneen's report on Morning Ireland. At nine, Shay in the hot seat and joining him, actor Fanula Flanagan. She's currently in rehearsals for John B. Keane's Sive. Shay can relate. He too has tread the boards. I've done a bit of acting in my time, not very well, and a few musicals in my time. And I know that actors spend a lot of their time in very cold hallway, halls, school, yes. school halls, community halls, rehearsing plays. Yeah. You don't rehearse in the glamour of the theatre, generally. No, hardly ever. <laughs> <laughs> and you're in the middle of rehearsal at the moment. We are, yes. We're rehearsing Sive, as you know. And, um, yes, and we're rehearsing in the uh, cricket club in Rathmines. And I think somebody talked about uh, bringing in a heater and and everybody's face lit up. Oh, yes, please, bring it in immediately. <laughs> That's the glamour of yes, it all. Yes, the all glamour, all. yes. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful play. I've seen uh, two productions of it. I've seen it's a very popular production for local drama groups as well. Yes, I so I understand. I saw it in the Abbey in uh, 1985, I think, and Mary Keane, whose role I have now taken on, um, was wonderful. And of course, Sive tells the story of a young woman forced to marry a much older man. Fanula Flanagan plays the role of Nana. Nana is the only friend she has and tries to prevent that and tries to appeal to other members of the family, to her son, to do something about it. The other female character within the the family as such, Mina, uh, your relationship with her is, is again... The, 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 I think there's a great contrast between your relationship with Sive and yes. your relationship with Mina. You're, you're very mean to her. N- well, no, she's very mean to me. <laughs> That's why they call her Mina. <laughs> um, I, I actually think that uh, John B. Keane probably didn't like women very much, you know, no. because uh, Mina is written, Mina's role is written with such savagery 
and uh, necessary for the play, but written with such savagery that I think, good God, I mean, did he actually know someone who was like that? And, uh, and Nana also, Nana can hold her own and uh, she's very much more experienced with the put down, you know, and exercises it. Now, Flanagan has had an extensive career, including an Emmy win for Rich Man, Poor Man. The man who handed me my Emmy um, mispronounced my name. And so I thought that they should have given him lessons in how to say Fanula Flanagan, you know. But uh, then I sort of took it upon myself to say, it's Fanula Flanagan, right? (laughs) An Emmy is an Emmy. But if you are thinking of sending her on ideas for projects, yeah, maybe not. I'm getting the impression that you probably have uh, another 55 projects ready to go and scripts this high piled on the table at home. Actually, no, I don't. Um, No, somebody, people send me things that uh, they say, this is a wonderful book and why don't you adopt it and adapt it into a, a project for yourself? And I said, well, why don't you? You do that. <laughs> the amount of work that is like 10 years of your life that goes into adapting a book. At least when I did James Joyce's Women, that was it took 10 years before I could actually get it on paper and in a form that I could work with it on stage. But uh, that's what people mostly send me, are tomes, huge tomes. (laughs) And yes, we might know her from the others and, of course, her Molly Bloom soliloquy. But once you sign on for Star Trek, well, stardom assured. When I said that you were coming in to a friend of mine last night, he said, do you know that's Data's mother? Yes, it's true. I am Data's mom. <laughs> so for those who aren't star- Trekkies, this is, it's huge. I mean, the Trek, the Star Trek, you, you, an actor and a sort of main name is at a very small part in Star Wars, an English actor, and he has lived off going to conventions yes. for, for his entire life. Yes. The odd play. And I, then... I have not done that, but I've been encouraged to do it. <laughs> and I said, well, what do I have to do? They said, you don't have to do anything. You just stand there and they all look at you. <laughs> I thought, and they pay me for that? That's a bit similar to being on stage, but you don't have to speak and you don't have to learn any lines. And there's a picture of Data beside you. And even the actor who played Data might even be there with oh, you. Oh, he was wonderful. He was wonderful. Brent. All of which is the perfect setup for this deliciously indiscreet anecdote. In the um, episode that we did, uh, one of the funny things was I don't even play the comb and we had to, I had to play the violin, <laughs> right? And he had to play the... Uh, the, the the flute? Flute, yes. And so we're meant to do a duet for the members of... How they didn't... Lo- pee themselves laughing, I don't know. <laughs> Patrick Stewart was sitting there and I thought, surely he's peeing. And uh, so uh, the director said, I just need you to play, I need you to play the uh, for the long shot. And I said, OK, all right. And I I just left the, uh, the words aside and I was just concentrating on learning this. I think it was the girl with the flaxen hair that uh, we played. And... So then uh, I thought, oh, my God, he's going to do the close up now and everyone will see that I, my finger movements are all wrong and I don't know how to play the violin. And, uh, and then the door opened and in walked two 
to me, they were dwarfs. Two dwarfs walked yeah, little in. Little people. Little people. And they were dressed exactly as we were. And the director said to me, put your hands behind your back. And I did. And so uh, the, uh, the the young woman came up and she stood behind me and she put her arms through, she dressed exactly as we were dressed, put her arms through um, where my arms were like that. And she, and she took the violin and sight unseen, she played, you know, the violin. And the similarly for Brent, you know. And so all we had to do was look passionately at each other, mother and son reunited in space, you know. <laughs> it is hysterical. It's probably the most work that they got that whole year. But, oh, that's fabulous. Fanula Flanagan with Shay. And you will remember that she's inside. Also in that production, Norma Sheehan. She was on drive time, but for an entirely different reason. Phones in theatres. Adrian Dunbar hot on the heels of Andrew Scott. Actors not having it. Norma Sheehan as an actor first. Have you ever heard or seen a phone being used during a, a performance? Oh my God, are you having a laugh? Everyone has it on. But <laughs> yeah. that's just the way things are now. Sure, nobody, um, you know, plays used to be three hours. Now people's attention span is 17 seconds. So you have to forgive them. <laughs> yeah. And I have been in a situation myself where I had to like open a phone in an audience to, you know, there was a problem with a babysitter or there was something. We just expect everyone can answer their phone at all times now, which is oh, terrible. No. But as an audience member, you just have to be ready for it. Every five minutes, there'll be something to throw you. So if you're Ridiculous. in a theatre, you know, a 900 seater, a 1000 seater, or a 200 seater can be even worse because you can see the person's face as well. Mm. You have to be ready for something, whether it is, you know, actor, like, as an actor, you, yeah. when you're on stage, you not feel like saying, do not TikTok me. <laughs> um, John Kenny did that recently now in the gate. He did, he did just say, are you going to answer it? Are you going to answer yeah. it? Are you going to mm-hmm. answer it? Um, and that's fine. That's fine. But, you know, then you're kind of having to improvise around it. Um, you're better off just being more ready than you would have been years ago um, and expect the worst. But you also can't attack people because they could be the person with the laptop for Andrew Scott. That person could have been getting translations or an audio help or a sensory problem. You, you just never know what issues people have. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Someone with a breathing um, uh, kind of an oxygen tank in the front row there for a two hour show I was doing on my own once. Um, was, and 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 it just like I just had to pretend it wasn't there, but it was really really loud, like for for the whole show. Oh, wow. Um, and we just forgot about it after a while. We are very understanding, Norma. I have to say, I wonder. Steve- and it was that understanding that would be tested. I wonder, Norma, yeah. are you being a little, as I said, too understanding? Do you think, or would you like, for example? Um, theatres well, what, to take the phones away altogether. Norma you know, doesn't mind. She doesn't mind at all. You know the way there's some, well, um, <laughs> there's some performances I, I'm very, where they take the I'm very, phones away, you know, and they lock them in a grateful. box. I, I, I don't think that's going to work. I Well, it might. Jeez, it might. They're doing it in classrooms now. Thank God they're um, getting it off people. I think as an actor, if you let it get to you, it'll affect your performance and you You'll end up getting agitated. You'll do something wrong. You'll get more agitated. You'll forget your line. So you what? have to be uh, kind of. You don't mind sorry. at all, Norma, do you? You have, you have to be kind of Buddhist almost to let Norma, it go. Just stop it. You don't mind. <laughs> I'm just. <laughs> you see, Norma. Sorry, he has the phone out here. Basic, Norma, just basically, basically, you can all. all oh, you these... little effort. Well, there you me. go. Proof of the pudding. Do you know what? Oh, let me no. read you a text. See, do you see how professional she was? She I just need, kept going. I nearly got her to curse. She was brilliant. <laughs> there are no words. Drive time. 
And that is it from this week's playback. Thank you for listening. I'm not here next week, but talk to you the week after.